Hallelujah. Amen. Can you say amen? Come on, how good is that? How good is that? Let's just seal this moment with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of salvation, for the gift of new life, for the hope that comes when we find you and when we know you and we surrender our lives to you. Jesus, I thank you for the sacrament of baptism that reminds us that we have been brought out of death and into life by your word and by your son. Thank you, Father, for this. Bless these three tonight in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Say amen. Awesome. I feel like I'm way over left today, so I'm going to come way over right. Uh, It's great to be with you. My name's AJ. I am one of the pastors here. Um, I'm really excited to start a new series tonight at uh, midweek. Uh, We've got a great year of midweek uh, planned for you all, and uh, I've got to spend some time with our teaching team Um, We're going to be spending a lot of time together, Pastor Tiff, Pastor Corey, Pastor Sean, Pastor JC, Pastor Miata, um, really forming and shaping this environment and what we feel like the Lord is saying to us in this place. So I'm very expectant for that. I want to thank and honor Pastor Mark and Pastor Duke for the last two weeks for ministering phenomenal words. Uh, We just honor them, some of the fathers of the house, fathers of our faith for us. Um, If you missed last week... Uh, it's a message worth going back and re-listening to. Probably if you heard it last week, it's another message worth just going back and listening to. Pastor Duke preached on the holiness of God, and unbeknownst to him, I think, he really kicked off the series we're stepping into tonight, which is a series on worship. Um, he, he set out to give us a high view of God, which was language that I absolutely love, and he painted the picture of a God who is so deserving of our worship. And if that's who God is, then it matters not only that we worship him, but it matters how we worship him. And that's what this series is going to be about tonight. It's going to be about worshiping God the way he deserves to be worshipped, not just in song, but with our whole lives. Uh, The title of my message tonight is Known and So Loved. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word? Text tonight is in Romans chapter 1. We're going to read four verses, verses 21 through 25. This is Romans 1, 21 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we need you tonight to come into this space to give us a revelation of who you are. Help us, Lord, to see you as you are. Lord, would you put your words in my mouth? Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that can understand what the Spirit of the living God is saying to us in this place that we might turn back to you and be healed, I pray in Jesus' name. you say amen? Amen. You can be seated. I want to tell you one of my favorite Pastor Brett stories. It's a good one. He knows it. 
I've shared it uh, once or twice before. But about 11 or 12 years ago, maybe more, uh, I went to meet with Pastor Brett for my first ever uh, discipleship meeting. And we met at the Expectations right over here in Chantilly. And as you would imagine, I was so nervous, didn't know what to expect, but definitely was like sitting in my car reading my Bible just in case he asked me about what I was learning in Scripture. And um, so we go in, we sit down, we're having breakfast. You know, he was like, do you want some food? And I was like, was not prepared to order food. Didn't think we'd be ordering food at, at a restaurant. Don't know why that caught me off guard. But I was like, oh, yeah, I'll have pancakes. And he's like, great, I'll have a, a, a yogurt. And I was like, ah, I don't even want all this. So off to a terrible start. Um, and we're sitting there and we're chatting and we're talking about the Bible. He did ask me what I've been reading, so I was prepared. So I knocked that one out the park. And into our conversation as we're dialoguing about God and the church and the Bible, uh, there's a young man who's sitting at a table adjacent to us. And he leans over and he says, hey, I'm sorry, I couldn't help but overhear. Um, you guys are talking about God. Are you all Christians? And Pastor Brett responds, yes, we are. And this guy goes, great. And he kind of engaged a little bit too much. Um, and I'm just kind of sitting back and watching. And I'm not going to label him as like a conspiracy theorist. All I will say is that a lot of what he was talking about was kind of weird. <laughs> Up until the point of inviting us to join him as they finish breakfast and go protest and picket the Westfields Marriott, where, again, I lost the story, some conglomerate of somebody's are doing something demonic. And I was sitting there just like, oh my gosh, you picked the wrong table, bro. <laughs> Out of any table you could have turned to, you don't know who you're talking to across from me. This is going to be great. I was licking my chops like, yo, Pastor Brett about to get this guy out the way. Like he is going to dismantle this man systemically and it is going, I'm just in for the show. And I just, I was literally so eager and... In true Pastor Brett form, as gentle, as kind as you could be, just said, hey, you know, thank you so much. We're actually in a meeting, you know, so, you know, and just he honored the guy. He honored our time. He dismantled the situation. The guy went back to his food and left, and everybody was fine. There was no offense given, none taken. It was just totally diffused. And it was in that moment that I realized I knew Pastor Brett, but I really didn't know Pastor Brett because that is not what I thought was going to happen when somebody who knows less about the Bible than me comes up to me, an expert in the Bible, and starts telling me about the crazy things the Bible says. If you know me, I'm going to tell you how wrong you are. <laughs> and I'm not worried. This is, you know, a decade plus ago. I'm not worried about your feelings. I'm worried about how great I'm going to look in this moment and how smart I'm going to be and how wrong you're going to feel. And it was in that interaction as I watched it that I realized that although I had sat under Pastor Brett's pulpit for some time and I had heard him speak for some time and I had, had seen him and heard his stories about his life, I had never gotten up close to his character. 
I had never been intimate with him in a moment where it wasn't this setting. I had not seen him just in the real world behaving as his real self. And that's when I realized that I was thinking he was like me. And I thought he was going to behave the way that I would have behaved in a moment. And it struck me and it shocked me that I knew him, but I did not know him. What Paul says to the church in Rome as he writes to them, he says, they knew God, but they did not honor him as God. Now, what a profound saying to be said about a people who know who God is. They know him, but they don't know him. Because if they knew him, there is no choice but to honor him. So they, so they know him, but they don't revere him. This is my first thought for tonight. What does it say about the people in Rome, and what does it say about us that we could know him as God, but not worship him as God? It means one of two things happened. It means they didn't really know him, or their thoughts about him had become shallow. I just want you to zoom out for a second. As you think about the God of all creation, that you know is God. You know a God. Like you know the God. You know an uncreated, eternal one who is vast beyond measure and intimate beyond compare. He is a complete and utter mystery, and yet he is knowable. He is all-powerful, and he is all-good. He is all-knowing, and he is all-loving. He is ever-present, and he is ever-so-intimate. He is love-personified, revealing what he's like through self-sacrificial acts and steadfast faithfulness. He is God with the power of life and death upon his tongue. And you know him. And how could it be that you know him, but you do not ascribe any value to him? How could it be that you know him, but you do not consider him valuable? It can only mean that you really don't know him. You just know of him. Because to know him is to worship him. To stand before him is to fall flat on your face and to see him is to cry out for mercy. This is what our message last week was all about, the passage of Isaiah 6. Isaiah, the mighty prophet, this great man of God who had not only heard, but he himself spoke the word of God. Isaiah was familiar with the good things of God, but he had not yet stood in the presence of the ancient of days. He was familiar with the things that were created, but he had never encountered the uncreated one. God can be known and yet not fully known. And I start with that truth not to scare you, but to sober you. A normal part for all of us in our journey of faith with Jesus is growing over time in our knowledge of God and exploring and mining the depths, the bottom of which we will never reach. Yet we spend a lifetime pursuing him and knowing him more. 
But so many stop far too soon. And they only come to know God in part and not in whole. So they know him as Savior, but they don't know him as Lord. They might know him as God, but they don't know him as a father. They might know him as a judge, but they don't know him as their justifier. He is known in part, but not in whole. And this is important because if we cease to search the depths of the knowledge of God, we will also cease to worship him. And he will be known by us, but not revered by us. It says they knew God, but they did not honor him as God. And what is worship? You know, this series, we're not, I'm not going to try to give you a full definition tonight on what uh, worship is and, you know, five pithy words or anything. The, the next uh, eight weeks or so, I hope to give you, um, or we hope to give you, a very uh, robust definition and understanding of what we mean when we're talking about worship. But worship, the word itself, is just worthship, right? It's ascribing and giving worth or value to something. It's how we denote the quality and the value of something. I think our passage actually gives us a phenomenal um, uh, starter dough definition. Uh, And we can build off of this in the weeks to come, but I think what Paul writes is a beautiful place to start, where he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So I think that's a great place to start. When we're talking about what is worship, it's honoring God and it's giving thanks to God. I think if you do those two things in your worship, you're going to be off to a really good, really good start. That word honor is the Greek word doxazo. We did Greek tonight, so come on, it's Wednesday night, so join me. Take take some notes and impress your friends, I guess. Doxazo is the word for honor. It means to render or esteem glorious. That word sounds familiar because it's the root of doxology. Liturgical phrases, liturgical songs that help you render or esteem God as glorious. Doxazo. They knew him, but they did not doxazo him as God. Other words in scripture that help us define what worship is, sebazomai. This means to have a reverential awe. It's a mindset. Latreia. It's a service of worship. It's an act of worship that's done. I pick these because what it teaches me is that if we are going to render or esteem God as glorious, if we're going to honor the Lord, it means we need to do that not just in the way we sabazomai, not just in the way we think about God, not just the reverential all we have for him, but also in our service and our act of worship to him. A worship is not just in thought, it's not just in word, it's in deed. And this is how we give honor to God. Honor is given. Respect is earned. Honor is given. Thanks is also given. The word here for thanks, euharisteo, which if you see it, you read it as eucharisteo. But I did my study, and that's not how you pronounce it. So it is the same word for Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper, if you're wondering where you get that word from. And if you remember, this is Luke 22. Jesus takes the cup, and he what? He gives thanks for it. He eucharisteos for it. And then after the meal, he takes the bread, and he breaks the bread. And what does he do? He gives, he gives thanks for it. That meal, the communion, 
that moment done at the Last Supper with God is a moment of giving thanks. And what does Jesus say? As he says, as often as you do this, what is the instruction? As often as they gather to give thanks for the Lord, he says, what well, do this in remembrance of me. What is the purpose then of our gratitude to God? It is to remember. It's to remember him. And what is the purpose of our remembrance? It is to worship him and to thank him for what he's done, for who he is and how he has been to us. So this is why when we worship, we gather around a moment, a body, the body and the blood, and we give thanks for it, remembering what the sovereign God of all creation has done, coming to earth as a man to live and to die for us. We need worship that both honors God and gives thanks to him because if we don't remember him, he will become common to us. He will become ordinary, unspectacular, exist in, but not needed. And we will cease to feel or find a need to worship him. So we honor him and we give thanks in remembrance for who he is and what he has done. You see, the people Paul writes about had ceased to worship him. They had started to forget him and he became less than God to them. He was known, but he was not revered. And the result, the passage continues, reads that they then became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He was not revered, and so he was forgotten. This is my second point. This is Newton's third law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. This is one of the lessons, actually, I really hope to impart to my sons. I want my boys growing up, and I hope you all know this too. I'm sure you do, but your actions have consequences, right? We all need to learn that sometimes. You can't just do whatever. And just have whatever, like whatever you expect to happen, happen. Like if you say the thing, you're going to hear something back. You're going to offend somebody. You're going to hurt somebody. It's going to be out there. You can't take it back. I teach my boys all the time. I don't know if this is good or bad, but it's just true. I say, if you hit, get ready to get hit. Like that's just life. You can't just walk up on somebody and think you can take something from them. And they're not going to come right back at you. You need to learn that your actions have consequences. You live in a world of repercussions. My parents all grew me up on the phrase, you reap what you sow. What you put out, that's what you're going to get back. So make sure you're sowing good seed. Every action you take has a consequence. And when we don't worship God, when we know him but we don't revere him, it has a profound and significant impact on our lives. Because they did not worship him, they became futile in their thinking. Instead of trusting in an almighty and all-powerful and all-loving God, they began to trust in things that were futile. Worship, I'm sorry, futile means incapable of producing any useful result. So instead of trusting in a God who is able they began putting their trust in things that were known to be incapable. 
and their thinking became futile. And their best strategies, their best plans, their best phrasings, their best way of doing life never was able to produce any type of result that was useful to them. Have you been there? Where everything you've tried doesn't work. You've read every book, every podcast, talked to every one of your friends, gotten all the bad advice you can get, responded out of the flesh, and you wonder, why is nothing going my way? It's because your thinking has become futile because your reverence is not upon the Lord seeking his will and his word, which is far more than able. It says their thinking became futile. And when you live your life long enough, thinking in futility, incapable of producing any results that are meaningful or matter, at some point, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you get exhausted with bumping your head up against the same wall and the same people over and over and over again. And you just get exhausted The type of exhausted a nap doesn't help. The type of exhausted a vacation doesn't help. The type of exhaustion, you're not sure how you will ever recover. You're just fed up. Do you know what the Bible says happens to you at that moment? Your heart goes dark. The light of life that God breathed into you begins to dim. Because although you know him, You've not reverenced him. And because you don't reverence him, you have forgotten him and you have looked to what has been created to be your source and your anchor and your rock and your guiding light. And that has not worked for you as it has not worked for anybody. And over enough time, the light within you begins to darken. You claim to be wise, but you act as a fool. And you turn from the sovereign run, exchanging the priceless for the worthless. Exchanging the beauty of the immortal God for a cheap knockoff. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And like fools, they begin to worship the created things rather than the one who created them. What I'm trying to say is this, is your worship matters. It is powerful. It makes a difference in your life, which is why every time you worship, you are entering spiritual warfare, which is why the devil wants nothing more than to take the song off of your lips. He wants to bring you into this moment discouraged and distracted so you never enter into the place where God can meet you. That's why you feel the way you feel sometimes in worship. That's why stuff happens on the way to church. You wondered why that was? That's because the devil wants you thinking about anything but God when you're in this place. He wants you in your feelings and out of it. So for us, it becomes incumbent then. If that's the value and the significance of worship, it becomes incumbent upon us to worship God well. So how do we do that? I think we just follow the pattern of the passage, which is what? Number one, your thoughts direct your heart, okay? It was because their thinking had become futile that their hearts became dark. So what do you think about when you think about God? Because if you think about him right, 
you'll be able to worship him right. But if you can't think about him right, then you won't be able to worship him right. How can you marvel at his character or sing songs about his goodness or testify to his power or wonder at his mercy if you have not known it or if you think it's insignificant? Your thoughts direct your affections. They direct your hearts. So it becomes incumbent and critical upon us to then guard our thoughts as it guards our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellspring of life. So when we think rightly about God, our heart's affections for him begin to get stirred. So how do we form our thoughts about God? It's through the word of God. And so it goes that we cannot worship God well without the word of God. The word of God teaches us the truth about God, and in doing so, it ignites our heart's affections towards him. His testimony, his words, how he acts, how he thinks, how he behaves, it's all in the book. Which is why the songs we sing must contain the words of scripture. So why the words that we preach must stick closely to the text. And the prayers that we pray must have chapter and verse within them. Because the further we get from the word of God, the further detached our worship gets from the truth. And we stop worshiping him with reverence and with awe, and we start just enjoying. And we root our worship in how we feel in any given moment rather than in the person and character of God. Our thoughts direct our hearts, and our hearts direct our worship. Because you worship what you love. It's what you ascribe value to. It's what you prescribe worth to, the things that matter to you. You sacrifice for your spouse and you buy them gifts and for your children. Why? Because you love them. They're valuable to you. They matter to you. So this, for me, then begs the question, what is it we're worshiping when we're worshiping? Because if we're not careful, we can have a transcendent experience in worship and never actually worship him. Tozer has this great quote. I'm officially declaring 2023 as the year of Tim Keller and 2024 as the year of A.W. Tozer at midweek. So as it is said, so it shall be. (laughs) A.W. Tozer says this. Some mistake the music of religion as true worship because music elevates the mind. Music raises the heart to near rapture. Music can lift our feelings to ecstasy. Music has a purifying and purging effect upon us. So it's possible to fall into a happy and elated state of mind with a vague notion about God and imagine we're worshiping God when we're doing nothing of the sort. We are simply enjoying. It is that which God put in us and which sin hasn't yet been able to kill. If we are not careful, we can let the experience of the music elevate our minds but never stir our hearts or ignite our spirits. What is it you're worshiping when you worship? Is it the moment? 
Is it his mercy? Is it the music? Is it the creator? Is it the, is it the momentum of the people in the room? Or is it the unstoppable force of his relentless grace that has so captured your heart, you're going to sing and dance no matter what anybody says? What is it that you worship when you are worshiping him? Because even in a corporate setting, the devil is coming for all of our worship. And if he can't stop you, he sure will try to corrupt you. Have you ever been insecure while worshiping? Like you want to lift your hands, but, you know, like there's people around. You don't want to be weird. You want to sing, but you don't want to sing too loud because you don't want the person next to you to hear you and think about you. So you just kind of sing like this. Like you really want to, you really want to let go, but like, you know, I don't want to. What is it you're worshiping when you're worshiping? You want to pull your Bible out at your desk at work and read during your lunch hour, but man, I, really, I don't want to be seen by. The approval of man will always drive you out of the presence of God. You can be singing songs to God, but giving value to man. What is it you're worshiping when you worship him? Where are your heart's affections? Where do they lie? These are just the traps. I've been in every one of these places. And it's caused me to reflect in that moment, what am I thinking about? What is my heart's affection for? That's why I gotta close my eyes half the time. I can't look at y'all in worship. It's too distracting. Because I need to see him so that I don't see you, and I certainly stop seeing me. I'm the biggest barrier to my own worship. What is it you're worshiping when you're worshiping him? How you think about God directs how you feel about him. How you feel about him directs whether or not you'll worship him. And thirdly, just this, what you worship is ultimately your choice. It says they exchange the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God respects your choice when you choose what you want to worship. And it says that God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, because they had chosen to believe a lie over believing the truth. The truth being that God alone is worthy of our worship. The lie that there is anything else that deserves to be worshiped as God is. It is the lie that there is something else that can satisfy the desires of your heart. It is the lie that there is a joy that is better than the joy of the Lord. That there is a pleasure, more pleasurable than experiencing the pleasure of God. It is the lie that the holy and sovereign God who made you, formed you, loved you, and saved you can be secondary. And we serve a God that we know is second to none. He is primary. But if we choose to worship something other than God, if we choose to worship the passions of our flesh, our own earthly ideologies, our ideas, we soon realize how futile it is and our hearts grow dark, lifeless, joyless, 
and hopeless. This is what Paul has made, and I have made, I think, abundantly clear in the first chapter of the book of Romans. You have a choice in what you choose to worship, not whether or not you worship. You will worship. You were made to worship. It's a function of who you are, but it is what you will worship. So Paul lays this foundation out, and I just want to now survey the next 11 chapters of Romans because I need you to see what Paul is doing as he systematically then unpacks and unfolds the gospel for a people who are confronted with the reality that what I do is I worship things. And the things that I worship chief of all is myself and my flesh, my desires and my passions. And it is abundantly clear that God will allow you to do that. He will let you go with that if that's what you choose. So chapter one, God is against ungodliness. He will let us worship what we want but there will be consequences for it. Chapter two, God judges sin. And if you're holding to the law, I just need you to to be reminded, you broke the law. You have sinned and God will judge that sin. Chapter three, and there is no one who is righteous except for God. He's the only one. But we can receive that righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter four, Abraham is the proof of this. Abraham was justified by faith because Abraham believed, so then God saved him and chose him. Chapter five, our justification by faith produces peace with God. And in the same way that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, righteousness now comes into your world through Jesus. Where sin abounded, grace abounds so much more. Chapter six, you were dead to sin, but now you are alive to God. So no longer let sin reign in your body. You are free from sin. You are no longer a slave. Chapter seven, because you have been brought to new life in Christ, you are freed out from under the condemnation of the law. Not that the law is bad, it helps guide us and shape us and form us, but we are no longer judged according to the law, We are judged according to Christ's righteousness. Chapter eight, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those who are found in him. You then are alive by the spirit of God. You are a co-heir with Christ awaiting a future glory that will be one day revealed to you and nothing, no nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. Chapters nine through 11, that is true for the Gentile but it is also true for the Jew. And the promise that God made to the Israelites will come to fruition now as well. They too are included in the saving grace of God. This good news is good news for everybody. So with all of that in mind, chapter 12, verse one, put it up there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When you know him, as Paul helps us know him, when we know ourselves, 
The way Paul makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear, it diagnoses our condition. When we know ourselves and yet we know him and what he has done for us, he's not only revered, he is loved. Paul says, this is your act of worship. You once used your bodies as defilement. You worshiped yourself and your flesh and your passions and God will give you over to that. But now that you have been redeemed, present that body to him as a living sacrifice. Every bit of you, every breath, every thought, every action that you take, all of you now is a sacrifice offered unto God to be pleasing and acceptable. This is how we worship him. With everything we have, all that we are, remembering who he is, what he has done, remembering he saved us, redeemed us, called us out from the pit when we were dead in our transgressions. That is when Christ Jesus died for us. So now all of you, every bit of you, every day you rise up, and walk out of your house and interact with any person. Because you are living and under his grace and redeemed, you are a walking miracle, a walking testimony to the grace and the goodness of God. So every word you speak has the power to worship his holy name. Every thought you think can bring him glory, honor, and praise. You don't understand the power you have, not in a moment of singing worship songs, in the way that you walk every day, when you honor the Lord with your life and you give thanks for who he is, remembering who he is. Got another Tozer quote for you. I don't think I sent it to them. I don't know if I did or not, but he says this. He says, we are brought to God and to faith and to salvation that we might worship and adore him. God has provided his salvation that we might be individually and personally vibrant children of God, loving God with all of our hearts and worshiping him in the beauty of holiness. It's kind of like, what do I do after I get baptized? Like, what's next for me? You worship him. No, yeah, should I become a member of the church? Yeah, no, 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 you should, you should worship him. Well, can I serve, join a small group? Yes. And in doing, you worship him. You are saved unto the worship of God. This is what you exist for, that you would be a living testimony of the glorious power and grace of our God. We are fully known and so loved. Let us know him so that we might fully love him the way he ought to be loved. And here's why. And I'll close with this. The church needs worshipers. And this world needs worshipers. We don't just need a beautiful building or great children's ministry, which we have. We don't just need good preaching. We need worshipers. We don't need more programming, more small groups, more events. We need worshipers. We don't need an audience to entertain or public speaking that encourages. We need worshipers. We need rowdy, unashamed, Holy Ghost-filled, Spirit-empowered worshipers who are unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of Christ Jesus to save first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Because when we live our life as worshipers, everything flows out of that. 
when I realize the way I speak to my wife has the opportunity to worship God or curse him, I start thinking about how I interact with my wife. When I think about what I do with my time and realize what I do with my time has the opportunity to honor and glorify God, I think about what I do with my time. When I consider what I look at, what I think about, who I talk to, it can honor him. It can glorify him. It can put a smile on his face. I think about what I do in those moments because every breath that I breathe is his. Because he saved me. I was dead, and I'm not anymore. What am I living for if not to testify to the one who saved me? Every day, this is the reality we get to live in as worshipers, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and restored in this life. We've said it before. If God's only goal was to unite you with him, you would get saved and drop dead. We'd put you in the baptismal and we'd just hold you there, right? Like, <laughs> so there is purpose here on the earth for us. Our lives, all of them, every facet of it is a sacrifice of praise unto God. My prayer is just this, that he would be exalted and we would be brought to our knees. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the Holy One, Mighty One, Perfect One, seated enthroned in heavenly places. Glorious are you, God. We are grateful, Father, even just for this season in our church to sit and to ponder the magnificence and the power and the beauty of you. To be filled with a fear and a reverence before you to tremble in awe at your power, to reflect upon how holy, holy, holy you are. And so, Lord, we worship you in this place. We lift up your name over every other name, and we exalt you in this house and in these hearts. We testify, Father, that you are worthy to be worshiped God, if we got nothing from it, you would still be worthy of worship. And yet, God, as we worship you, you ignite hope in us, and you heal us, and you meet us, and you restore us, and you set us aflame. You are abundantly generous and abundantly good, and we worship you for that in the mighty and holy name of Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. Church, you're the best. God bless you.